Welcome friends and colleagues. Today I want to come back to the story of men and women and get a little bit deeper into the archetypes and the psychological uh, states and beliefs that the Torah is negating. As we've discussed in the past, a part of the approach of what it tells, not what it says, is to understand what a narrative, a scene, a twist in language is trying to exclude. Once you identify that concept or idea, the text begins to sparkle with allusions, depth, and profundity. In this case, we were talking about, uh, just to review, the way the woman appeared to men and how he gradually evolved. The story seems to tell us that there was a surprise creation of a woman and that Adam identified her as a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh seeing her as a completely physical being. When God called him out for eating of the tree of knowledge, he blamed her. The woman who you gave with me. It's not until the tone changes, and from speaking about Adam, we began to identify them as both of them, men and women, as a group, see the descriptions in chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and 21, that he appears to have grown, and they became partners, fellow sufferers, and a unit. And um, by the time Adam is expelled from the Garden of Eden, it is back again to calling him Adam. Now, as a unit, a human being, rather than a man. I want to try to identify what the Torah is trying to negate with this particular twist in the story. Now, I will mention that there is the legend of Lilith. Lilith is mentioned in Isaiah. Um, that she she rests uh, in a ruined place. And um, and uh, it's it's not clear what Lilith actually is. Uh, the the simple meaning, for example, the Radak and Sefer Ashroshim says that it's a, a, a creature that cries at the night, or uh, it might be a hyena, some translate. But in verse 34, 14, there's also an understanding that it's some kind of an evil spirit. This understanding appears first, to my knowledge, in the Alpha-Beta of Ben Sirach, which is a apocryphal work. And then it kind of continues to live in the outskirts of the Jewish tradition. Now, 
who was this Lilith? Lilith was created at the same time as men and also from the earth. Uh, for whatever reason, there are many different explanations, as well as outside of the Jewish tradition. It didn't work between Adam and Lilith, and she left him. Some say she copulated with Samael, kind of a proto-satanic figure, and created all kinds of destructive spirits. There's, there are many traditions surrounding this. Like I said, it's kind of on the outskirts of normative Jewish tradition. Although Rashi quotes something like that. And uh, then there is a creation of Eve. So we have two archetypes here of a female being, of a wife, of a woman. One seems to be pretty evil. She comes back to suffocate men's children and to cause nocturnal emissions, which, of course, um, defile the men. And there is the Eve herself. It's only at the end of the process of suffering together and working together on common goals that Adam names Eve again. Now, that's a very unusual thing to find within a short time someone giving the same entity or the same person, the same place, multiple names. We do find it, and uh, we spoke about that a bit, we'll speak about it more. But uh, to me, this represents the growth of the recognition of Adam. Without Lilith, first he saw a woman as purely a flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, something to physically reconnect with as, as we spoke in the past, but the archetype of a divided human being that is reconnected through love and marriage and produces new life. But after they are out of the Garden of Eden, he calls her Eve, Hava, the mother of all life. He raises in his understanding of a woman and a wife to a much higher, much more elevated understanding of a woman. This concept that there are two kinds of women. There's a attractive, dangerous, evil being, and there is a pure mother of a life being, has been very influential in the Western world, although it kind of disappears and goes underground in Judaism, uh, for several reasons, which we will briefly discuss. But I want to make a little detour to explain it and point to Rashi's explanation to Genesis 23.1. It says there that the life of Sarah was seven years and twenty years and a hundred years. And Rashi makes an interesting comment that has occasioned much discussion and much commentary. He says that the verse comes back and first it separates the single units, the tens and the hundred separately, but that's not that uncommon. Then it comes back and says, Shnei Chayei Sarah, these are the years of Sarah's life. So we already just explained that it was 7 and 20 and 100. Why does it need to be further 
So Rashi says something interesting. He says that the reason it was separated into 7 and 20 and 100 is to, to teach us that Sarah at 20 was as beautiful as she was at 7 and at 100 she was as free of sin as she was at 20. This draws on a, on a, a statement of the sages that the court above does not apply the extirpation uh, penalty chorus until someone is mature enough and is at least 20 years old. But what's curious is this beautiful at seven. Now we tend to think of women as being beautiful, of course, but are fully formed mature women, not seven-year-olds. Not only that, but this beauty of the seven-year-old seems to be primary and greater than the one at 20. Sarah is praised for being as beautiful at 20 as she is at seven. So to to understand um, what is taking place here, um, I think that the narration in Genesis is trying very hard to struggle and negate what Freud called Madonna whore concept. Sorry for the unfortunate word, but that's what you called it. Concept there is Freud, here's a quotation, where such men love, they have no desire, and what they desire, they cannot love. This comes from seeing a woman as a sinful creature that leads, leads the man into temptation, loss of control, or something divine and source of life, kind of the Madonna and child uh, of Christian iconography can be one or the other, but not both. The idea is very deep in Western culture. It underlies the knightly concept of chivalry, where a knight might think about the beauty and the goodness of his lord's wife with the husband sitting right next to her and being quite secure that this will never proceed into a physical relationship and being, in fact, um, pleased by it, uh, which is a strange thing, isn't it? And the behavior of that same night that would then would go and abuse peasant or serf women and not see them at all in the same way. The, the concept um, is both psychological, archetypal, and has been written about in books and movies, <coughs> It's submerged in Judaism, but it survived in Christianity. Just, of course, a much more dualistic religion than Judaism is, but the concept <coughs> appears to have been negated by our story, which is that, yes, there, there is, men do tend to see women as one or the other, but through experience, through living and working and sharing the fate uh, of a real woman through marriage, they begin to understand and rise above the physical perception understanding of a woman to a complete, uh, nuanced view. Yes, a woman is something can lead the men astray into darkest 
portions of life, but she is also a trusted partner who is the source of all life. And it's really up to the men to understand and internalize that. There's another place where this idea comes up. Again, a likely trying to put it away. And what I mean by that is in Genesis 4, where there's a curious passage, starting with verse 19. It talks about Lamech, and he's from the Cain's lineage, so we already know that this isn't so good. And he took two wives. It says Lamech t- took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second one is Tzila. This whole pa- pa- passage is quite mysterious. I mean, what do we care if he had two wives? And then there are some children that they give birth to. And then he speaks to his wives and tells them that I didn't kill a child and etc. You can look at it. Uh, it's, it's quite mysterious. comes out of nowhere and seems to go away to nowhere. And it's, it's very not clear what it's talking about or what the importance of this verses is for us. So an interesting, that's a tangent, an interesting explanation in Shadal that he was the first one to marry two wives and that's why it's recorded. We're, we're recording here all kinds of discoveries, metalworking, uh, a war, pasture, and so therefore we also record this major human development of taking two wives. That in itself is what Radak says. Then the Shadal goes to explain that having two women is not easy and they drove poor Lamech crazy and he's complaining to them about that. That's what the passage is about. Uh, if so, it's of really supreme enough importance to warn men not to marry more than one wife because this is what happens. It's important enough to be included in the Bible. So, we come back to that. Rashi, however, has a different explanation. He says that this whole story was worthy of inclusion because... Let's look at the names. First wife was called Ada. She means one who is turned away. And the second one is called Tzila. That means the shadow. So he says that uh, the, the generation of the flood they uh, commonly took two wives. One was for procreation. And this wife was put away. She would sleep on uh, on the ground and be fed portly. And the other wife would be beautiful, would be just for relations. uh, And she would always be by his shadow, his in his shadow, meaning the man put the beautiful wife who was for pleasure uh, as his real wife, and the other one was not only neglected, that but uh, 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 treated poorly. Okay, but one may ask a question, if this was a purely utilitarian division, why did the wife that was for procreation put away? So there are a few things you could say about that. Maybe that procreation was seen as a necessary evil. 
that it was not like the Greeks sort of thought that the love of a woman was of lesser quality than uh, a love of a man for a man. Or maybe they, uh, like nowadays, disliked marriage and disliked commitment and they have disliked family, but uh, should one choose to have children, they were uh, in the darkness of one's life, in the dark, obscure portion. The really exciting stuff went on in the state banquets with the tzila, with the wife who is your shadow, being there for beauty and glamour. But also you see, and maybe uh, uh, alternatively you see, that the recrudescence of this archetype, that some women are just for utilitarian purposes, having a family, producing children, but they're bad, so they're treated badly. Other women are for glamour and relations and public display, and they are treated very well. I think the cumulative weight of this undertone was understood, was absorbed, and the lessons were learned, and you you stopped having uh, this theme in Judaism. Uh, I'm not aware of it recreating again beyond Genesis. But however, as I said, it has remained a strong influence in the Christian world until our own day where the high has been lowered and the elevated has been darkened and good is called bad and this myth I believe is dying out in our society uh, as does the concept of chivalry. Back to Sarah. So why was Sarah beautiful at seven and why did it continue that at 20 she was as beautiful as at seven? Well this underscores Sarah's spiritual grace and beauty. There is a way and there is a sense in which Abraham and Sarah uh, are a replay, a most successful replay of Adam and Eve. Generally, and I wrote about this in my book on Ruth, that uh, we find this idea throughout Tanakh of lives being replayed, uh, and whereas in the earlier iteration, uh, the people failed, failed in some way at least, gradually through replay with their descendants, uh, the replays become more successful until that failing is completely eradicated uh, from their descendants. Particularly, I spoke about the Moabite licentiousness and the morality that started with Lot and his daughter Moab, that named the child Moab from the father, and then the daughters of Moab that tempted the sons of children of Israel in Arvos Moab, and unto Rus, who, however, was able to overcome this familial defect. It came out again in some of the kings of Israel, but ultimately disappeared as um, a, a, an operating factor. 
was superseded, sublimated, and surpassed. Here's a source that uh, points this out. It's from the Zohar. It's on page 34 of the Sulam edition. And it says that Rabbi Shimon said that when Abraham entered the cave of Machpelah to bury Sarah, Adam and Eve arose as they did not want to remain buried there. They complained that they had suffered sufficient disgrace in the world beyond the grave, where they were now facing God because they have been guilty of bringing sin into the world. Now they should suffer additional shame when constantly having to face a pair of people so much better than they. So Abraham prayed uh, on Adam's behalf, not only that, but through a play on words in Genesis 23:19. After that, Abraham buried Sarah. After that, refers that he reburied Eve as well. So this is a very, very um, deep um, uh, story. Uh, in Genesis 2:4, it says that this is a generation of the heaven and earth by Hebarom when they were created, and the letters of Behabarom can be moved around to spell Abraham. So Adam and Eve, uh, they were created by God, but they failed. And Abraham and Sarah were the couple that replayed their historical situation and redeemed it and elevated that. Just as Adam and Eve were ancestors of humanity, Abraham and Sarah were the ancestors of Jewish people, of course, not only Jewish people, but other peoples as well that stem from Abraham, but certainly the Jewish people. Sarah, in that way, has fixed and repaired the problem of Eve, Adam's mistaking understanding of who a woman was, his error in thinking that a woman can be only evil and bad, or divine and the mother of all life. And um, he became the ancestor of Jewish people who are unifiers rather than splitters, that are the people best fit to teach the world that women are both a source of temptation and danger, but also of inestimable spirituality and giving of life. Thank you for listening. May you have only blessings.